You're listening to the DCAU Review, hosted by Cal and Liam. Streaming on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at DCAUReview.com. Now, here's today's episode. Welcome, everyone, to episode 128 of the DCAU Review. I am Liam, and with me, as he always is, is Cal Cal, we are continuing in our month of Justice League Unlimited reviews with uh, another interesting one this week. Yeah, we have one uh, again from the very first season of Justice League Unlimited as we've kind of been hanging around in that area so far this month, uh, kind of forcibly be based on some of the storylines and stuff like that. We don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here with the way the JLU rolls, but yeah, we'll be covering the season one episode entitled Hawk and Dove appropriately. And uh, it's, it's one that I don't think was heavily in rotation or was one of my favorites uh, when, when we first saw it. So uh, it was definitely somewhat refreshing uh to to watch again not one that i had had watched a lot so uh be interested to see uh, both of our thoughts on this episode and and what we think as we uh as we go through our scores here for sure it is not uh your traditional uh action heavy superhero adventure story uh there's a lot we will get into as we discuss our four main categories of plot visuals music and voice acting but before we get there cal i of course must lead us off with the official imdb synopsis for this week's episode yes and this episode if i did not mention of course originally aired on the cartoon network back on july the 23rd 2005 meaning we just passed the 15 year anniversary for this week's episode there you go and as you mentioned cal this is the synopsis for hawk and dove which was written by Bob Goodman and Ron Zimmerman, directed by Joaquin DeSantos, with music by the Dynamic Music Partners and animation by DR Movie Co. And that synopsis reads as such. Ares creates a war machine called the Annihilator to escalate a civil war in Kaznia. Hawk, Dove, and Wonder Woman try to stop his plans. Well, there we go. Um, so I think that one's pretty good. I, I mean, it's, it's doesn't go into too much depth there. They didn't use a lot of big words, but it, it's, it's pretty decent. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, from, from that point, we can use that as a jumping off point to get into our plot discussion here, Cal. So there's a couple of different things at play here. We, we open with, uh, some, some exploring a little bit more of the Greek mythology that sort of surrounds Wonder Woman uh, that being uh, Ares, the god of war, and Hephaestus, who's sort of this, uh, uh, who makes armor and weaponry for uh, for the gods. A blacksmith, if you will. Exactly. And uh, he cr- creates this, uh, what I guess is sort of a magical robot called the Annihilator, as our synopsis mentioned, uh, that uh, is, as we come to find out, is fueled by rage and violence. And therefore, it is unstoppable so long as there is, as people are willing to fight it. And that sort of comes into the central conflict of the episode as Wonder Woman has sort of been, we get some, some exposition with her and uh, the Martian Manhunter speaking at the beginning about how she's been 
a little a little over aggressive, a little violent of late. We see her sort of taking down some bank robbers and and really uh, really uh, taking a taking a, a hard approach to uh, to disciplining them as as well. So she's sort of dealing with her own anger and frustration, and that's sort of uh, contrasted by this duo these brothers uh hank and don better known as hawk and dove who of course as the names which would suggest hawk is very much a punch first ask questions later type of superhero whereas dove is always sort of looking to diffuse situations and avoid violence when he can and uh, that sort of leads us into them being sent in to stop this civil war that is uh happening in the uh recurring uh, fake European uh, country of Kaznia. We get a name check of uh, Queen Audrey, who of course was uh, Diana's friend in the episode Maid of Honor, which you can hear our review of if you head back into the archives at dcaureview.com. But yeah, so there's a lot, a lot at play here, Cal. We have all this like Greek and Roman mythology going on in one corner. We have the side story of Wonder Woman sort of being frustrated and angry. And then we have this main plot being all of our heroes sort of stuck in the middle of this civil war that's being perpetrated at least in part by Ares. So there's a, there's a lot going on here. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of moving parts and uh, there's some, obviously this is the first appearance of Hawk and Dove. This is the first appearance of Ares, the God of War. Uh, so we have a lot of new characters being established here and uh, there's not a, a whole lot of background given for Hawk and Dove. You quickly sort of learn their roles based on the situation that they find themselves in. Uh, they are introduced uh, in, a, in a bar situation where it appears they're sort of this angry mob looking to uh, to fight them based on perhaps uh, Dove or Don was sharing his thoughts on who knows what was happening possibly at the time politically. <laughs> I think they're done talking. This is ridiculous. Just because I disagree with you doesn't make me unpatriotic. No, you being a bleeding heart punk makes you unpatriotic. Actually, I got to agree with him on that one. Too late trying to side with us. You're both taking a beating. Look, we got off on the wrong foot. Don't you think we could find plenty of things we all have in common if we just tried? Uh, it seems that these guys are, are, they call him a bleeding heart, I believe, which obviously yes. typically is a uh, adjective used to describe someone who's a little bit more liberal, someone who's more peace loving. Uh, so the, you could take from the situation that maybe they are in a more traditionally conservative pro military area. And maybe they were <laughs> having a discussion that uh, led to, to Don sharing his opinion on, on the military and fighting. And obviously, which is sort of the undercurrent for this episode and ultimately plays out uh, in their favor that he, he is more of the peacemaker type. Um, but yeah, then you have Ares, of course, the, the God of war who's introduced here in his, uh, in his one and only DCAU appearance. Of course, uh, the annihilator robot does come back into play later on uh, mm -hmm. in, in justice league unlimited, but um, you know, it, what better weapon for the God of War than a than a weapon that is fueled by rage and war? Uh, it just he's he's an agent of chaos. He loves loves obviously war. And if if you've seen the Wonder Woman movie with uh, Gal Gadot and uh, much heralded and and lo 
loved Patty Jenkins film, then you're probably mm-hmm. somewhat familiar with Ares and his whole spiel and what, what he li- likes to do and kind of his role. Uh, but this was obviously done way before that movie came out. So this is sort of the introduction, at least for a lot of fans that maybe weren't as familiar with the, the DC continuity of who this, this Ares God of War is. And of course we, we had, we haven't covered the episode yet, uh, but we did have Hades make an appearance on a, on a prior episode of Justice League. So this is just another one of those Greek gods, as you mentioned, that is sort of kind of filling out some of Wonder Woman's history there. But yeah, I, I think the interesting thing as we as we get into like talking about our plot here and certainly uh, discussing our scores for it is uh, you do get some more depth. We haven't covered a lot of episodes uh, that f- deal or that dealt with with simply uh, Diana or kind of her backstory. And I think mm. it's very interesting that the, the opening scene that they have is her stopping a bank robbery. And I try to take a day off, try to have a semblance of a normal life, but you had to pick today to rob a bank. <laughs> oh yeah, like that's going to work. Wait, please! I've learned my lesson. I promise! No, you haven't. Your kind never learns, and it's really starting to get on my nerves. Diana. In a minute. Diana! I'm not finished here. I'd say you are. She's very, very exasperated and clearly just done. She talks about <laughs> take, trying to take a day off and couldn't do it because these clowns wanted to to rob a bank. And she's really going. Uh, I, I think Bruce would probably would have been proud with the uh, with the tactics and the, maybe the level of violence that she was kind of enacting <laughs> against these uh, these bank robbers. Maybe maybe some of her influence of of uh, taking a liking to Bruce translated over to her being a little bit more rough on these guys. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, there's a clear frustration uh, that, uh, that she's experiencing at the start of this episode of sort of being fed up with, with just her, her day to day, it seems, and, and feeling like she's in this cycle. And like you said, she, trying to take a day off and have sort of some quiet time to herself. And that's of course interrupted by these guys trying to rob a bank and it kind of just pushes her over the edge. And, and uh, yeah, I I think that's interesting. I don't know that we get like a great payoff to that angle of the story. Um, She sort of does a little bit of detective work on her own. Uh, Once she fights the annihilator for the first time, she notices the, seal on its chest and realizes that that's the mark of Hephaestus and she sort of goes off and and figures out that he's responsible and eventually figures out that the annihilator is fueled by rage but I don't I didn't feel like we got a great payoff to the Diana is frustrated by uh, all of the BS in man's world story there at least not in this episode um yeah, I don't think I don't think there was a great payoff for it either. I mean, ultimately, because this is one of those episodes that is only 22 minutes, it's a very fast-paced, fast-moving, and a lot of the plot seems to be I I struggle to use the word wasted, but it seems to be wasted on this sort of Kaznian battle. Um, there's a, obviously that's where the, the, the majority of the action of the episode comes in as well. We, ha- we have to have some sort of action beat for this episode. So it's going to be this war between the North Northern and Southern parts of this Kaznia nation. But there's, there's some, 
weird like Ares supplanting the general storyline yeah. because the general doesn't want to doesn't like doesn't want to straight up just completely annihilate the 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 other side so Ares has to supplant him as the leader um there's to me i I thought there was some stuff that was sort of meandering around a little bit at times uh when it came to that with that said i i did think that ultimately it seemed like and we we've talked about this before in the past is the mark of a good story is are the characters in the same place that they were at the beginning have they advanced at all was there an advancement in the overall plot Mm -hmm. and from the beginning and it wasn't a giant leap forward but i think that there was a at least a half step forward with diana with recognizing that as she's sort of teetering towards this i'm going to use my fists and take my anger out on this because i'm just so tired of man's world and frustrated with how absolutely insane they are mm-hmm. to this end end point where the northern and southern parts of Kaznia ultimately put their weapons down and just kind of go their separate ways. There's no resolution to it, but maybe there's a little bit of hope for Wonder Woman that comes out of that seeing that like she, you know, she can see that, okay, well, as bad as I think man's world is, maybe there's a little bit of hope that comes through this because they, they were willing to put their guns down at the end. Yeah, and I, I guess her sort of ultimate moment is she's she's telling everyone that they're being used and she she shouts at the soldier to lay down his arms and he refuses and actually hits her in the face with the butt of his rifle. And she has this, you know, incredible look of rage in her eyes. And then that's sort of when it dawns on her that the, the Annihilator must be uh, fueled by by anger and hatred. And, and, and that sort of is the is the tipping point there. So yeah, there's a little bit of a, re- a resolution to it to re- I guess her realizing that her aggression can be used against her by uh, agents like Ares out in the world. And, and yeah, there there's a, yeah, there's some interesting stuff in there. There's, but to your point there, it's not, it's not as if all of a sudden at the end she decides and she has this big aha moment where she, she does recognize that her frustration right. and it, it's interesting because at the very beginning, there's a conversation that John has with her where he's sort of, he's able to relate to her and empathize with her and recognize that they've both been changed and shaped by their interactions with human beings and, and man's world as he puts it. And there, but there isn't this sort of like, warm and fuzzy moment at the end where they both are like, ah, you know what? Deep down man is just okay. And everything's (laughs) going to be all right. There's not that like bow tie on the end of it. And whether or not the writers decided that that was something that they intended for this episode, I, I, I can't say, I, I don't know. I think the more we see more of a resolution or more of an advancement of the characters of Hawk and Dove in the overall plot and kind of how Hawk kind of at least, starts to recognize that dove this sort of warring between the two the two brothers that like hawk as you mentioned is fist first and dove is sort of like well let's talk about this and see if we can work out a peaceful resolution so the fact that hawk sort of sees the value in that that peace aspect towards the end to me was was the overall like glaring advancement in between the two or three plots that were happening yeah, you get to, you get to spend like I said. We this is really the only episode that focuses on these characters, but you do get 
uh, a very quick understanding of that they are brothers and that they do have sort of a, you know, big brother, little brother relationship. And they obviously have very different views there, you know, when they're flying in the invisible jet to Kaznia, you know, Dove is talking about, you know, the economic and educational reasons that people take up arms against their, their neighbors and things like that. And how, how these civil wars, can get started and, and, and Hawk is kind of, uh, is kind of shaking him off. And then towards the end of the episode there, when, when Dove is literally standing between the soldiers and the annihilator and telling them to drop their weapons, because clearly what they're doing isn't working. So let's at least try it this way. And, and Wonder Woman has to physically hold Hawk back as he's, as he's, you know, terrified that his brother is about to be destroyed uh, yeah, that's uh, that's that's really good. And then as soon as the uh, the battle is over, they're sort of right back to the bickering and in the way that uh, family members can be. Is uh, I think that's uh, that's that's all quite fun. And like I said, I think the thing with an Ares, he kind of actually plays. It's funny, and we'll get to this in voice acting. He sort of plays the role that Canto uh, played in the uh, the Superman episode, uh, Tools of the Trade, where he shows up as this like benefactor for the army and, and, and uh, is, uh, is, uh, is delivering them this weapon. And he's so frustrated when they only want to use it to sort of maintain their territory rather than to push forward and, and violently destroy their enemies. And I, I, I think there's an advantage of using a lot of these mythological characters is that you don't need to do anything subtle and there's like nothing that can be too hammy or two over the top if it's literally the god of war. Right. Um, so look, like that end speech he gives about, you know, whatever there is hatred or bigotry or inequality, I shall be there. Like, like a lot of villains, you would roll your eyes at that, but it's like, it's literally the god of war. So he kind of gets away with it there. So that's fair. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think, I think that's very Saturday morning cartoon, but when you think about it, a lot of these, a lot of these mythological characters based on, you know, Greek or Roman mythology, you look at it and it's like, they're kind of goofy concepts to think about anyway, but, but so it kind of fits with it. I I totally agree with you. Absolutely. And yeah, so overall, I think this is a, a solid episode, a good episode. Like we said, there's, it's a non-traditional type of plot and there's a lot of interesting, fun elements to it. Um, so I, uh, I settled on a seven out of 10 for my score for plot. Wouldn't you know in the episode or on the podcast where we rarely disagree, Liam, we have <laughs> the exact same score. I also gave it a seven out of 10. Get uh, out of I, town. I, I think, I think, yeah, I think we are sort of robbed uh, from having Okay, so I'm going to be forthright here. Hawk and Dove are not my favorite characters. And this, <laughs> this episode, while the introduction of the characters is certainly intriguing, especially because of the dynamic between the two of them and the ideological differences. And obviously, in today, especially in today's day and age, that's incredibly relatable based on how everything is in our country and everything is in our society. There's everything is complete and polar opposites and you're either on one side or you're on the other and there's rarely any middle ground. So these two characters clearly are relevant 15 years later, even more so maybe than they were at this time uh, in history. So they're very interesting. And I think fleshing some of that out going forward and, and kind of, kind of having a, a meeting in the middle of 
of ideologies certainly uh, is a fascinating concept, uh, but we don't, we're kind of robbed of any further advancement of these characters beyond this episode. I think they maybe make cameo appearances in a couple of later episodes, but there's, there's no, not really further development on either one of these guys. So we are kind of, it's kind of like a one and done type episode. So because we're limited to whatever it was, 22 minutes with maybe 15 minutes devoted to these two characters specifically, it's really, really hard to say that the the plot was really, really good because it, it kind of just, it's a self-contained episode that feels like it sh- it deserves maybe a little bit more. Yeah, it's, it's, it's in the same vein as some of these other season one episodes we've reviewed with a character like Booster Gold or somebody where we just kind of get one episode that focuses on them and then we kind of move on to uh, the other characters. So yeah, there's, there's, like I said, I think there's a lot of, there's some fun to be have. It's, it's interesting. As you said, the political messaging of the episode is still very, uh, very relevant. Um, So there's, there is some fun to be had, but uh, maybe not, uh, maybe not an all time classic from a, from a writing standpoint either. It's interesting Uh, though. You, uh, while we were, while we were uh, previewing this episode this week, I understand that you had an interesting interaction about the plot with one Mr. James Tucker. That's right. Of course, James Tucker was a producer on JLU as of course went on to be the showrunner of Batman, the brave and the bold, as well as all uh, quite a few of the DC original animated movies that have come out over the last decade or so. Uh, but of course, was a producer on Justice League at this point. And uh, he mentioned that at the time this episode aired, uh, of course, they would, uh, I guess he would, he would check uh, message boards and stuff, which, uh, you know, pre, pre-Twitter, I guess that's where you go to see the, the hardcore fan reaction to these <laughs> episodes. And he mentioned that a lot of people thought uh, the character of Dove or Don was, was gay, uh, I assume, and he he said the only assumptions he could or that they could have gotten that from would have been that he is a pacifist, and perhaps because he wore like a a, a nice like purple or pinkish shirt at the start of the episode, they assumed. Uh, I guess that informed his his sexuality in some way, which I found to be uh, very funny. Um, just one, I, I guess there is that sort of TV trope of. The, you know, if you're not a, you know, a tough macho guy, that must mean you're, you know, you're effeminate and, and somehow, you know, it's just, you know, sort of outdated looks at, at masculinity and everything. But I thought that was a funny note. And that was, it was nice of, uh, uh, always love interacting with, uh, with James or any of the other creators. Uh, and, uh, it was, I thought it was funny that he passed that note along to us as we were uh, previewing this on Twitter this week, but yeah, I mean, it's funny because these this version of uh, of Hawk and Dove, and there have been quite a few different versions with different people t- taking up the mantle, but if you read the original, like, 1960s or 70s Hawk and Dove comics, um, this is pretty, this is a pretty accurate uh, portrayal. Uh, if anything, Dove is maybe a little less of a pacifist here than he is in those early comics, Um so yeah, it is pretty much much like the question, much like a lot of the characters that they would bring in, a lot of the new gods and things like that. They they pretty much just took the classic Hawk, original Hawk and Dove uh, archetype that was created by Steve Ditko and Steve Skeets and just kind of uh, put them into this DCAU world. But yeah, I thought that was a, a funny note from uh, from James Tucker. And like, like we said, always always appreciate getting to interact with him uh, you know, Twitter's not all bad. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's mostly bad, but it's not all bad. Amen. Um, 
And uh, from there, Cal, we can move on to visuals and animation. As I mentioned, this episode was directed by uh, Joaquin DeSantos. Uh, it's, it's interesting. We have some things to talk about. We have, of course, as you said, new characters like Hephaestus and Ares and the Annihilator. We have this sort of war-torn part of Kaznia uh, where, these, where these two warring factions are going at it. And then we have Hawk, Dove, and Wonder Woman kind of in the middle of it. Uh, what uh, stood out for you this week in visuals? Well, I, I think it's, it's certainly very hard. Right off the bat, we are introduced to uh, Hephaestus and Ares and, and the Annihilator suit. And they definitely all have unique looks and certainly very familiar sounds as we'll get to once we get into our, our voice acting this week. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think the stark contrast between, I, I believe it uh, at least uh, Hephaestus refers to Ares as his brother. So there's certainly mm-hmm. a stark contrast between the looks of them. Uh, <laughs> Ares is certainly more suave and debonair and Hephaestus sort of looks like the troll under the bridge or Danny DeVito or, or <laughs> they are one in the same. Um <laughs> Right. Uh, You you got my reference. I understood that. (laughs) Um, So, you know, and then you have certainly the introduction of this giant robotic suit of armor, which is... uh, is a unique take. I think it has certainly has some Kirby 1950s influences uh, to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I gotta say I was a little bit, it, it is sort of underwhelming when you, and I think maybe it's intentionally underwhelming because you think about the, who was the person that designed it. It wasn't a Lex Luthor robot. It wasn't a, you know, Wayne tech robot. It's not, it's not any of the modern technology companies that are fashioned to this. It's a, you know, a, a first century blacksmith of one of the greek gods uh, <laughs> or maybe not even first century pre pre first century uh, greek god's brother that that fashions this so um it, it's it's an interesting look not my favorite i didn't i didn't love the look of the suit but it's certainly unique enough um i think the, the things that stood out to me to me overall though certainly uh hawk and doves look very true as you mentioned to their original design um i did did like that uh and i don't know if it was intentional or a nod or it just worked out this way or you you might be able to tell me based on the original design but uh hawk's eyes sort of have the joker spy versus spy look to them which Mm -hmm. which sort of uh which sort of plays to the sort of rivalry between hawk and dove you know if there is like a a spy versus a spy type relationship between the two of them um but he has sort of the white pupils with the black outside of them as opposed to the the more traditional all white with maybe a, a little black border which gives him certainly a unique look and seemed to be uh very expressive to me um but uh you know a, a couple of the other things uh we have uh certainly the opportunity to talk about wonder woman's invisible jet uh which we probably haven't talked about too much beforehand but i gotta ask you what is the purpose of the invisible jet like when does that when does the invisibility come into play where it's like an advantage uh that's a great question i uh (laughs) i don't i can't really think of an answer for you at least none that we have seen to this point i think we've we've only seen it. I like, it seems like in this JLU series, uh, 
like they just got like a couple characters got like personalized javelins so like she has the invisible javelin batman has like a new bat plane javelin that he flies in a few episodes like so it just seems to me like they uh they just got some personalized weaponry why she wanted an invisible jet can all the javelins go invisible we don't know uh is this a special one made for her i don't I don't know. We no one ever addresses it. Like no one ever points out. Like, oh wow, we're in an invisible plane. It's just like that's the jet Wonder Woman flies in. Why does Wonder Woman need a jet? She can fly. Um, right. Yeah. That's... I mean, I guess in this case, she was flying Hawk and Dove with her, so it made sense to have a transport. But yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of questions are raised by the invisible jet here, and like where it came from and why she has it and <laughs> all of that all of that is very very confusing um i i think there are to me the standout scenes as far as visuals were concerned the scenes in hephaestus's sort of blacksmith shop were uh were visually interesting especially the scene where wonder woman goes down to sort of confront him and tr- see if she can figure out uh, what the weakness of the armor is it's a you know, we've we've talked about it a lot, certainly when we're covering Batman The Adventures Continue comics, which you can check out in uh, in the archives at DCAUreview.com. Check out our bonus episodes covering those. But uh, issues, uh, the scenes in that, those issues, and then it, it sort of reminded me of this, uh, this scene. Scenes that are backlit by fire and sort of have this orange mm-hmm. hue over them. It gives them such a different feel from your standard outdoor... Um, standard lighting and a lot of this episode takes place during the daylight so you really are sort of transported from the general uh, I guess standard earth to this where wherever this blacksmith shop is in in uh, whether it's in the earth or what uh, other dimension or wherever it is that this place exists. Um, it really, it really does a great job of, of contrasting against the, the brightness in the daytime. And I think the orange hue kind of, of that comes over from them standing in front of the blacksmith's fire really adds to the, the atmosphere of that scene. Agreed. Uh, yeah. I think, I think that scene's good. I think the transition of uh every time sort of Ares changes form where it's whether he goes from the suit into the armor or from transforming into he's takes the place of one of the, of the Northern Kaznian general at one point and sort of reveals himself to dove uh, like the fire sort of causing the transition. I thought that was cool and uh, an interesting way of visualizing his, his abilities Um yeah, like I said, I, I would agree. I wasn't a huge fan of the Annihilator design. I think it's it's fine. There's nothing, certainly nothing wrong with it, but it isn't uh, it isn't particularly spectacular either. And then, yeah, uh, Hawk and Dove. It's interesting because I don't, I don't, I think in the comics they don't really necessarily have a lot of like clearly defined superpowers. At least this original team, but here they seem to be have some super speed as well as uh, Hawk seems to be also have a super strength and um and so they they clearly have some abilities beyond just being guys guys in suits i do like the uh the transformation scene it's very power rangers but i i liked it when they you know they literally <laughs> shout their when they shout their own names and then transform in the the way the suits sort of come around them especially i think dove like yes is like again in sort of a, a defensive pose his hands over his 
his face as the suit kind of comes around him and then the cowl sort of uh, comes up and, and appears over his head. I thought, I thought that scene is, uh, is pretty cool. And then, yeah, I think the, the final bit there, it's difficult because this is supposed to be a war zone, but we can't show guys getting like shot. So it's difficult. It's just a lot. Of, like, it'll be like a shot of just like a bunch of soldiers firing. And then you cut to the other side and there's some soldiers firing. So it's hard to. Uh... It's very G.I. Joe 80s cartoon where there's just red. I mean, my, take out the, the red lasers that are firing. Yes. It's pretty much just a G.I. Joe cartoon where they're just shooting and no, there are no casualties shown or no presumed dead people. There's no dead bodies on the ground. So it's just a bunch of like people that have terrible aim, just shooting <laughs> things and firing and explosions. And we don't even, I, I guess we're, it's presumed that when Ares supplanted the leader of the army that he uh, presented the, the annihilator to that he killed him. But even that we don't, we, we don't see it or it's not, it's not spelled out clearly that he does. Yeah. Yeah. There's, that's, <laughs> Yeah, there's so there's, it's a war zone with no casualties as far as we can see. And so, yeah, it's, it's like I said, it's, and I understand this is still a children's cartoon. I'm not expecting to see blood and gore, but it does make kind of for a an uninteresting setting when it's just kind of guys firing weapons at nothing for a while. But, I mean, there are some cool little bits like Dove, the guy's about to throw the grenade and Dove, you know, puts his hand on it and gets him to put the pin back in and and things like that. They do some, some cool stuff with that, but yeah, overall, uh, like I said, I don't, I don't think the visuals, anything stands out as, as bad necessarily. I do feel like wonder woman is a little bit off model in this episode. Um, just, I don't know. I just feel like she's, she's supposed to be like a tall character. And I feel like I, she didn't, she didn't feel like as physically imposing as she does in a lot of other episodes. Um, again, maybe that's just, I, I don't know, maybe maybe that's my imagination or, or just felt like, especially when she's like confronting the soldiers at the end, it felt like she should have been like towering over them a little bit and she isn't, but. Yeah, uh, I think I think there's a difference, especially at that, in that opening scene. She seems to be very um, visually, like size-wise similar to the guys that she's confronting, which to me is she's supposed to be an Amazon. So she's a little bit larger, but yes, I think that I think there was some proportion issues towards the end because she, um, yeah, she did look a, a, a little smaller. I would say, I would say that that's fair. Yes. Yeah. Not, it's not a, like a super big problem, but it is something I, I noticed there as we uh, tend to nitpick a little bit here. Uh, overall, like I said, I think it's, Decent, nothing to write home about, though. And so I settled on a 6 out of 10 for visuals this week. Okay. I gave it a 7 out of 10. I just want to tick higher. I think with the action, though, uh, I think that if this is a... Let's say, let's transport this and it's a space battle instead of this sort of benign... A sort of in undescript or indescript battle between this northern and southern hemisphere nation. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe it's a little bit. We give it a little bit more excitement because uh, you know maybe it's it's a battle with space lasers. I, I don't know something that that added a little bit of nuance to it. But there are a lot of explosions. There is a lot of fighting that happens. The action is sort of constant in this episode, which. Imagine if there hadn't been this sort of war undertone. I like this episode would have been just like unbearably boring. It's a lot of talking. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah, it's a lot of talk. Okay, sorry. 
Not good. Good? <coughs> Go ahead. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of uh, a lot of talking. And so, yeah, you had to have some sort of, I guess, constant action or motion sort of happening in the background. And yeah, I mean, some of the some of the fight between Wonder Woman and the Annihilator at the start and, and Hawk, and, like I said, Hawk, you know, picks up a tree and, and knocks the Annihilator back with it. Like they do some some cool creative stuff with our, our sort of small roster superheroes that we see in this episode. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's certainly more of a it's much more of a story driven episode, especially by the end there. Um, and from there, Cal, we will move on to music. Of course, music this week by all three of the dynamic music partners: Lolita Ritmanis, Christopher Carter, and Michael McQuistian. Uh, what did you think of the music this week? Um, so there is because of the heavy action scenes, there is a lot of what sounds like. Uh, background filler music it's it's certainly heavy heavy rock uh heavy rock influenced as we've already discussed a lot this month is that's the signature of justice league unlimited it's it's guitars it's drums it's heavy on sort of rhythm guitar in the background Uh, the main musical notes that i can't that came out that stood out for me again as we always say justice league unlimited not one of those that you can kind of isolate and listen to the soundtrack because it hasn't been released yet but certainly the the parts where wonder woman uh enters scenes certainly uh punctuated by her theme song that's always a plus Definitely, yeah. That was the standout for me. We get it played in a lot of sort of varying ways throughout this episode. We have it sort of played traditionally at the start when she's confronting the the bank robbers. We have it played sort of all rocked up in some of the more heavy action scenes. And uh, in the moment when the when the soldier hits her in the face with his the butt of his rifle, and she sort of stays stares back at him angrily. Yeah, you hear it sort of played again, very like ominous you know angry uh strings so they yeah they they did sort of thread that through i didn't really pick up on a hawk and dove theme beyond the sort of you know triumphant crescendo when they first transform and they didn't seem like they had a recurring musical theme throughout the episode again uh, maybe we would be able to pick up on it if they just released all of this music uh in isolation uh would love to see it or love to hear it, but uh, yeah, overall, I, uh, I yeah, I didn't have a ton of other musical notes beyond what we mentioned. A lot of yeah, a lot of uh, heavy guitar and and you know, sort of fast paced, uh, you know, fast percussion and all that stuff, and the action beats. And you do get sort of again that sort of ominous string music when uh, a lot of the airy scenes uh, when he's transforming and when he tells you know when he tells the the uh the general that he's going to take his place and and things like that and and where when he reveals himself to dove near the end you get some more traditional sort of ominous evil music there but uh yeah overall uh certainly nothing wrong with the music but not a lot stood out and uh yeah i actually gave music another six out of ten and uh right back at you buddy uh, <laughs> I also gave this one a six out of ten so two out of our three scores are identical and uh yeah i i think that we've talked about this a lot especially with these episodes and you briefly just sort of alluded to it but a lot of times we are sort of uh impressed when there are unique themes given to a character and especially even if it's in an episode where they aren't featured again if the composers have decided to go out of their way to sort of 
write a piece that sticks out and that is clearly one that is reused even within the confines of that one episode. I think we go back to, you think about a savage time and you think about uh, the Blackhawks theme stands out. That's the only time that that theme is really used. And uh, it's, it's a piece that's extremely memorable. One that, that is loved and is appreciated. It's amazing piece of music. And it was written just for, for that period, that, that episode for that, that specific episode. So, um, or, you know, going back to Batman the animated series and you think of the gray ghost and the impact that those, mm-hmm. that, that soundtrack meant, or, you know, there's countless others we could, we could go back and talk about, but um, it, that sometimes is the difference between ta- us taking the score up to a, to a higher appreciation where it doesn't make mean that the music is bad. It doesn't mean that the music mm-hmm. is, is not appreciated or that they didn't certainly the dynamic music partners that it's other than Shirley Walker herself, it, that's the dream team of, of bringing together three incredible musicians. Uh, so, and sometimes that's all that's asked of them is maybe is to just do a, do a standard episode where there's not necessarily a piece that stands out but um it, it doesn't always reflect in the score that that as we always say that we're not saying this is bad just because we didn't give it a high score it means just maybe it didn't stand out as much as one of these other episodes have yeah absolutely uh still a, a solid job all around it it adds to the atmosphere of the episode but like we've been saying with uh, our other categories this was definitely uh for better or worse was a, a very story driven episode and so both the visuals and the music sort of played in background to that. And that will bring us, Cal, to our final category. That, of course, being voice acting. We have an interesting guest cast. We only have two of our original Justice Leaguers here. We, of course, have Susan Eisenberg as Wonder Woman. And briefly, we have Carl Lumbly as the Martian Manhunter. and then we have a, a pretty big guest cast from there. But uh, what did you think of uh, Susan Eisenberg this week? I think this is to date of the episodes of hers that we've covered. This is her best work. I think she's able to really show a great range of emotion. Mm-hmm. I think that that, it, that we've already talked about her, her frustration as a character in that beginning is really felt. She really feels like she's kind of, she's kind of had, she's at her wits end. Like she's, she's had enough of it. And, uh, and that really comes out in the way that she delivers that opening line to these guys that she stops from robbing the bank. Uh, and it continues in even in that conversation between her and Carl Lumbly there. That's, that's a pairing that we don't always get to see a lot mm-hmm. of interaction between, I think. If this escalates, it could easily ignite the region. What's wrong with people, Jean? Hostilities, they're answered everything. You're not one to talk of late. What's that supposed to mean? Diana, you and I have both been affected by our time among humans. It's important that we keep ourselves in check. First of all, those thugs back there got exactly what they had coming. As did that band of mercenaries last week. And those creatures from the Decor Nebula. They weren't misunderstood. They thought we were food! You're right, Diana. None of it has anything to do with you. And, but it's interesting because you think about that dynamic that they bring up in that conversation and that they are both sort of strangers to this world. We always think about maybe... 
uh, Martian Manhunter and Superman having a lot in common because they're both from other worlds that have come to Earth. Um, or even Martian Manhunter and, and Hawkgirl uh, in, mm-hmm. in some form or fashion. But when you think about it is, yes, Wonder Woman was born on Earth, but she was isolated from the general population of the world for the majority of her life. <laughs> Um, so you, you don't, you, she, she hasn't experienced or dealt with the sort of exhaustion that comes with dealing with, with the, with humans as, as a whole. Uh, so her being able to sort of flex her muscle, being able to show this dynamic range of emotion, her, her interaction with Hephaestus, I think is really great too. Mm-hmm. Um, she is sort of, again, she, this, this anger and frustration is bubbling under the surface and there's a, there's a great, uh, great back and forth between her and, and uh, I'm sure we're going to get to in, in our in our in our character here. We have Mr. Ed Asner that's playing playing oh, yeah. the great Ed Asner that's playing Augustus. Right. So they have a great back and forth there. There's an armored suit fighting in Casnia that needs no wearer and bears your mark. The Annihilator. Then you did make it. Who else does such fine work? Ares liked it. Ares, of course. How do you stop it? Ah, you knew to ask. I do leave a small weakness in each of my creations. An Achilles heel, if you will. It's so no one ever gets too powerful. You know what they say? Only Zeus is perfect. And what's the Annihilator's weakness? Diana, you wouldn't want me to go around telling people the weakness in your armor, would you? With that attitude, you'll never figure it out. Come back when you have more time. I'll let that suit out a little. And uh, ultimately, she has a she has a line at the end where uh, she talks about uh, it taking more strength not to fight, and I thought that that was really really awesome. Yeah, I think that's good. And again, we mentioned, and uh, I'll mention him now, uh, Michael York, who plays Ares, who, uh, as I mentioned back in the plot, uh, ironically playing a similar role to one Kanto played. Uh, He was the voice of Kanto on Superman, the animated series. And here he is playing Ares, playing kind of that similar role. But again, like I mentioned, he has this over-the-top villainous monologue about whatever there is hatred and bigotry and, and inequality, I shall be there. And, and, Susan, uh, Susan Eidsberg as Wonder Woman, just sort of very calmly but defiantly saying, and I'll be there waiting for you. Like, I thought that was, that, again, that's a very great heroic moment. And if you give that to a certain actor or actress, it could come off very hammy or very Saturday morning cartoon. But there's such conviction and uh, in her voice on that line. I think she does a great job. Uh, I do really enjoy Michael York as Aries. He has... I think the best line uh, of the entire episode is when he's yelling at the general and he says, I didn't give you the annihilator so that you could run them out of town. I gave you the annihilator so that you could annihilate them. (laughs) I didn't give you the annihilator so you could run your enemies out of town. I gave you the annihilator so you could annihilate them. That line. Yeah, that line was really great. I did notate that one. That was, that was fantastic. He sort of has this, uh, very classically trained Shakespearean, very similar to, I think, when we listen to Malcolm McDowell, who plays mm-hmm. Tallow. They're very thespian, classically trained actor 
over the top. Shall I win a country but massacre my people? Yes, you idiot! I think like a South Cassian? Has it even entered your skull that they think like South Cassians? And you better start thinking that way too, if you want there to be a northerner left in this rat-infested dirt heap you call a country. All any of you mortals are good for is to slaughter one another, to fight and fight until the bones of your enemies are strewn across the battlefield, only to rise again in the next generation like a well-tended crop. That's what the Annihilator is for. But no, you're using it to play tag. Almost enunciating, and I think it's to his credit, he's actually, he was actually cast as four different characters in the DCAU. Uh, he also plays uh, Count Vertigo, I believe, in uh, the Batman animated series Off Balance. He also plays the antagonist mm-hmm. in the Zatanna episode in Batman the animated series as well. So clearly this is a guy that uh, Shirley Walker, not Shirley Walker. This is a guy clearly that Andrea Romano was comfortable with going back to over and over again when she mm-hmm. needed to get somebody who was a little bit over the top in their performance and uh, could really add a bit of character in a way. And I think I think we mentioned it uh, when we were talking about the plot. This character is automatically kind of over the top. He's the god of mm-hmm. war. Like his whole <laughs> thing is he wants there to be chaos and stuff. So it's it's having Michael York cast as this this character. I think was a, another example of just absolutely knowing what you wanted from this character, and Andrea Romano going out and getting somebody that was perfect for this role. Yeah, and it's it's fun because yeah, when he's when he's the guy in the suit who's giving uh, the North Cassian army this weapon, he's he's so suave and kind of like aha, everything's coming to plan. But the second things aren't going exactly how he wants him, you see that rage and again that very over the top villainous nature just come out, and he's and then he's this sort of ranting, raving, crazy man. I mean, literally in the in, uh, we mentioned this in visuals when he's yelling at the the general like spit is flying out of his mouth. Like he's so unhinged at that point. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, I think Michael York did a great job of capturing that. And then, yes, as you already mentioned, we have Ed Asner as Hephaestus again. I think his playing off of Michael York as well as Susan Eisenberg was great. And uh, then we have our, our Hawk and Dove, a very interesting and cool casting choice here as we had Fred Savage and Jason Hervey, who of course played brothers on the wonder years back in the day, got to play brothers yet again here, uh, Fred Savage as Hawk and Jason Hervey as dove. And uh, I think again, like we, we talked about a bit in plot, but I think even though this is really the only episode we get that focuses on them, you do get that, that brotherly bond where Hawk is kind of constantly picking on him and, and, and kind of putting him down and they're, they're having this argument in the, in the jet on the way to Kaznia. But then in the end, as I mentioned, when, when it looks like uh, when Dove is basically willing to sacrifice himself to try to stop this annihilator. You don't have a chance like that. So try it my way. Lower your weapons. Let go of me! He's weak! He'll get himself killed! Done! Uh, 
and and Hawk is, is screaming about how you know he's weak, he's going to get himself killed. I have to stop, you know, I have to save him. You know that 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 big brother mode sort of protector mode taking over. I think they both do a really good job of of, of showing off that that sort of brotherly bond, both in the bickering, but then in the more serious moments towards the end as well. Yeah, and I think this is the case of of the certainly again your voice casting director saying, "Hey, you know what? We're going to cast people that have worked together, that have played brothers before, because they kind of understand that chemistry." Um, I personally have never seen an episode of The Wonder Years, so I could not tell you what their Same. chemistry was like on that show. Um, I'm most familiar with Fred Savage from his appearance in The Princess Bride as the. Yes. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> <coughs> as the uh the young boy that is getting the story read to him uh so but uh clearly they have they have a chemistry about them and there's a familiarity there between the two of them that really worked and that played out in this voice casting so that they could have this as you mentioned this sort of back and forth and this sort of bickering and from doing the research and looking up this apparently their roles on the Wonder Years were a little bit reversed. So they intentionally decided to, or they were interested in switching roles in this case. And with Fred Savage being more of the uh, antagonistic, older sort of domineering brother uh, uh, playing out as opposed to his character on the Wonder Years. So very, very interesting. I, I think it, it was, it was perfect casting for the both of them. There's sometimes, you know, you get a, 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 a a TV actor or an actor that's used to playing roles on television visually uh, doesn't always translate as we've, we've pointed out a lot to, to voice acting, but I thought that they did an excellent job. The both of them very believable, uh, especially uh, Fred Savage's performance at the end is as dove is just sort of standing there waiting for this, this robot to, mm-hmm annihilate him and the the panic and the fright and the fear that that fred savage is sort of able to express as hawk as he's watching this annihilator robot walk closer and closer and raise his fist up to to strike him uh done really really well you really i really felt like that there was a brotherly connection there between these two characters so another great job yeah absolutely overall i think it's a really really great voice cast um, especially with uh, everyone that we've mentioned here really doing great jobs. And for those reasons, I gave voice acting a perfect 10 out of 10. Well, wouldn't you know it? It's almost as if we ourselves have a brotherly connection here. <laughs> I also gave voice acting a perfect 10 out of 10. I think uh, well, based on based on all of the things that we talked about here today, I mean, anytime that you can get Ed Asner working in a minor role, uh, it just allows him to shine. Like he, he doesn't have a lot of lines, but just hearing his voice is just, it just, it reignited that fire that we need to, we need to continue to try and, and get this movement going for him to play granny goodness in the live action new gods movie. It's right. all possible. Hashtag Ed Asner for granny. Uh, yeah, he's he's phenomenal, and it's like it's a perfect voice. That Hephaestus design, as we mentioned in visuals, is so striking, especially contrasted with the the very debonair and suave uh, Aries. You have this, you know, uh, kind of overweight, hunkered down, balding guy, missing teeth, very haggard looking blacksmith. And uh, yeah, Ed Asner, Ed Asner came up with sort of the perfect voice for that type of character you know, that, that very strong rasp and, and gravelly tone to it. Uh, it's, it's great. It's a really, really great cast all, 
all the way around. Yeah, it, it's really good. And again, I think just pointing out uh, how great Susan Eisenberg is in this episode. And, Absolutely. Uh, a character that we maybe haven't had as much opportunity to kind of go in depth and hear, hear her best work yet. This is, this is one of her best episodes to date that we've covered and, may, and might very well end up being uh, one of the best that she does in the entire series. All right, Cal. And that will bring us to our final scores for this week and tallying everything up. Looks like I have a final score of 29 out of 40. And uh, because most of our numbers were very similar, my final score is also very similar. I end up with a just a tick higher, a 30 out of 40, Liam, which I guess will bring us, as it always does, to rewatchability. I, I don't think it's in the grand scheme of things, uh, other than the Annihilator robot making its first appearance, comes back into play later on, uh, where do you find this on the scale of must-watch, maybe-watch, skip it? I guess I would put this in a a maybe-watch, because as you mentioned, it comes back into play in a a couple more episodes that are are sort of integral to the rest of of the the second season of of JLU. Um, That being said, if, I mean, they explain what the robot is in those episodes uh, and it doesn't take you long to figure out what it is anyway. So I, I don't think this is like so, so important, but it is a little bit of nugget. If you're trying to sort of get a full picture of the important moments of the series, this is kind of an episode that goes more into the backstory of that. And, but I, yeah, I would put it maybe in the, uh, the maybe category. I mean, as far as an episode goes, like we said, I think it's, it's a fine way to spend 22 minutes. It's a, a non-traditional type of plot. We get a little more exploration of Wonder Woman as well as these new characters. Um, but I wouldn't say this is a must, must watch, but it definitely has some, some roots in, uh, in what becomes some more important plot points later on in the series. Yeah, I think, I think maybe just because of the, the reappearance of the Annihilator robot later on, it, it sort of makes it a, a must watch mm-hmm. um, just so that you understand the origins and, and, ha- and how the robot itself works. Um, I, I, but at the same time, like you said, because it's sort of just a, a filler, it does kind of uh, advance some Kaznian plots. Maybe if you're just like a Kaznian <laughs> person, like you're just fascinated yeah. by this fake European country that, that uh, exists in the DCAU, maybe that's it. I guess, I guess, uh, you know, we, we always started out with like a see it or skip it. And I think we've realized that somewhere in the middle, there's sometimes there's episodes that are somewhere in the middle where it's like, maybe you should watch this episode or it's not a, it's not a dire if you skip it, but you should probably watch it. So I guess, yeah, that this would fall into that. Like you should probably watch this episode, but if you end up skipping it, you're not gonna, the only thing that you you're going to need to do is Google to find out why the annihilator robot exists or where that came from. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's a, a fair assessment and that will begin to wrap us up for this week, Cal. Thank you, everyone, for listening, either on DCAUreview.com or on any of your favorite podcast app. We always appreciate that. If you have the time and ability, if, you can, uh, if your app that you listen to us on allows you to leave reviews or to, to star rate us, we would appreciate you taking the time to do that. I know it's a bit of a hassle, but the, the more reviews and, and, and star ratings we have, the, the higher we go up in search algorithms and stuff like that. We, Certainly love a chance for, uh, for more, more people to get to hear the show. So we thank you in advance for uh, doing that. But uh, before we wrap up for this week, Cal, I do want to mention that over the last couple of weeks, uh, the episodes are now out. 
I had the fortune of being a guest star on the Superman and the Animated podcast hosted by Nathan. Great guy. Um, we covered World's Finest, which, of course, you and I covered way back in episode 18, uh, I believe. Way back there. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so quite, quite a long time ago. So it was fun to revisit that with him. We covered all three episodes. The, our talk is split into two parts. Um, so you can check that out. Superman, the animated podcast. You can find uh, his show on Twitter at soup animated pod, S U P animated pod. If you want to hear that, uh, Nathan's a great guy. Um, hopefully we'll get to return the favor and have him on with us to review something someday soon, but uh, definitely wanted to give him a shout out and thank him for being uh, so uh, gracious as to have me on the show. And uh, before we wrap up here, Cal, let's give them a little bit of a preview for next week. So we will be continuing on with our final JLU review for the month, that being the episode Ultimatum. Uh, a lot of fun stuff to discuss with that, not just because it is the next chapter in sort of these early stages of this Cadmus storyline, Cal, but also some fun homages to previous uh, DC cartoons. Yeah, absolutely, Liam. There's a few nods to a uh, maybe a childhood favorite of some of our listeners or maybe some of our listeners' uh, first introduction to the Justice League. So uh, very, very interested in, in watching this episode with the, the critical eye that we take with all of our reviews here at the DCAU Review. And uh, again, this, this continues some of the Cadmus story arc. So this plays in later on in a lot of the heavier and... Uh, and deeper subplots later on throughout the JLU season two. So very excited to cover this episode with you. It's going to be a good one. That's right. And not only that Cal, but we will also have our next bonus episode coming in the next couple of days as we will be covering the final two chapters of Batman. The adventures continue the explosive finale to this latest chapter in the DCAU. So you can look out for that coming this week. And then of course our regular episode on ultimatum coming next weekend. So until then I'm Liam and I'm Cal and we'll be back soon with another episode of the DCAU review. Bye-bye.